Next on ReachMD, Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice in the front lines of healthcare. Now here is the host of Voices from American Medicine, ReachMD's CEO, Gary Epstein. There are still physicians out there who make house calls, and Dr. Sidney Antai is just one of them. Antai, who runs a family practice in Plainview, Texas, is also interested in other ways to extend care to his patients, including telemedicine. Dr. Antai, welcome to Voices from American Medicine. Well, thank you so much, and appreciate your having me. It's great to have you. I'm really interested in your background and all of your various interests, but I noticed something on your website about house calls, and I wanted to ask you about that. Tell us exactly what that is in this day and age. It's really not as unusual as one might think. In certain instances, I think it, it makes a whole lot of sense, even if you don't have an elaborate van that has x-rays and labs and everything else, which which I don't. I mean, I'm living in Plainview, Texas, population 20,000, and I have three satellite telemedicine clinics in towns ranging in size from 400 to 1,000 people. So, you know, we don't have all those kinds of resources, but especially for patients who, for example, are on hospice, where you know, it's not like you're going to need a whole ton of labs and x-rays to make elaborate diagnoses. You basically need to hold their hand and kind of be there for them. I think in those circumstances, house calls make a whole lot of sense in assessing pain control and, and just providing sometimes spiritual presence. Tell us about telemedicine. So explain to our audience, if there are those who don't know, what it is and how you work that into your practice. Basically, it's just seeing patients over a video link-up and that's a lot of the reason that I came out here to rural West Texas. I grew up in Hawaii, actually, and did medical school there and then trained mostly in California and then stayed on the residency that I trained at in San Bernardino for seven years. I stayed on as faculty, went to USC for three years, and that's where I really became interested in telemedicine because we had a telemedicine hookup to Catalina Island, which is about 30 miles off the coast of L.A., and it kind of became apparent to me the possibilities for isolated rural communities. Avalon on Catalina, population about 3,000 or so, was staffed by us USC family physicians for a while. And I remember in particular one night getting stuck there with a lady with undiagnosed twins. He was at four centimeters dilated and there was enough of a storm that, you know, we couldn't get a copter out. And it's like, man, sure it'd be nice to have you know, to have this telemedicine thing up and running with the OBGYN. As it was, I called up my dad, who's an OBGYN, and he was telling me how to cut the cervix to allow the preemie's head to come out easier. And it's like, oh, great, you know. <laughs> Fortunately, she waited long enough for the Coast Guard cutter to make it out and got taken care of by C-section in Long Beach. But, uh, you know, those kinds of situations make you realize how nice it would be to have a more sophisticated link up with specialists when you're on your own out there. Now, the telemedicine that I'm using actually goes a little farther down the food chain. Most of the telemedicine I think that people are used to links up primary care physicians or mid-levels with specialists to provide specialty care. And the impetus there is that I think larger health systems are always trying to drive the volume of their procedures where they get reimbursed well. And so by extending the feeder network of primary care physicians, they can get perhaps more procedures using telemedicine. But I think more recently, there's been a lot of effort at using telemedicine even as a 
tool to provide more primary care. And that's where I'm going in that these little towns that I've put clinics in are so small, they don't have a pharmacy. They don't, they're lucky if they even have a retired nurse out there. A lot of the times they'll have volunteer emergency medical techs. And so I've, I've hired those guys and given them a little bit more backup than they had and put a clinic in there and use the clinic as I would just another exam room that just happens to be 100 miles away and see people for urgent care visits or for routine diabetes and hypertension checkups just the way family docs would otherwise. How did you make that transition after sort of practicing and and being in a much more urban environment, as you said, in Southern California, to Plainview, small-town, rural practice? Yeah, for me, practicing as a faculty over in Avalon on Catalina Island was sort of an epiphany for me because... I found out that I liked it, and I could see myself living that way. And the lady that I talked about with the undiagnosed twins, the preemie twins, I saw her in the only supermarket a few weeks later, and, you know, she showed me the twins, and everything worked out fine. And and it's it's kind of a nice feeling that you don't typically get in a more urban environment, you know, where things are more informal, and you kind of just see people everywhere, and and you're kind of it. And uh, I thought, yeah, I can do this. And... You know, 12 years later, it turns out I could. And as you were describing telemedicine, and I know you've been so deeply involved in sort of medical informatics, how does your knowledge of that field really inform your existing practice today and, in your opinion, make you a better physician? And- On the state level in Texas, what I've been pushing for with the legislature and gotten after a long period of time is to get Medicaid to fund telemedicine in exactly the same way that Medicare does, which was a big improvement in in funding. And, and it took eight years, actually, because the Texas legislature only meets every other year. And it took a number of sessions to kind of get people up to speed as to what that would mean. I think the big problem, and especially even more acute these days, is that they really didn't want to see telemedicine funding busting the budget. And because of the way Medicare funds telemedicine, which is only in federally designated health professional shortage areas, basically not a lot of people live there, so it's not going to bust the budget. I mean, the first year, which was, I think, the year 2000 that Medicare funded things that way, I think I was seeing like 5% of all the telemedicine visits in the country. So because there just aren't a whole lot of people living in health professional shortage areas, there aren't a whole lot of people who can take advantage of that benefit. And then there aren't that many providers providing that benefit. So once that became clear to the Texas state legislature and they saw that the fiscal impact was going to be virtually nil, they were okay with it. But it it was a long educational process. And so I I think my background with legislation in California that USC helped push through helped quite a bit. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Gary Epstein, and joining me today from Plainview, Texas, is family medicine practitioner, Dr. Sidney Antai. Dr. Antai, you mentioned, and I wasn't aware of this, but you mentioned that your father was a physician. Yeah, he's an OBGYN in Honolulu, Hawaii, and he tells me that he's the oldest practicing OBJYN in the state right now at the age of 75. He's still catching babies. That's great. And I imagine he had a significant influence on going into the family business? Yeah, yeah. I have to say yes. Although I kind of knew I didn't want to be an OB, 
although I ended up kind of doing some anyway. <laughs> Were there things that you saw in medicine at an early age that you found inspirational? Was there someone other than your father that was a great inspiration that, that caused you to pursue a path or at least this sort of family practice in a rural area? I can't really say that. I, I think it was more an understanding and an obedience thing. <laughs> true. And, but it worked out. I mean, I, I don't really regret it. I think that it's a noble profession. I can look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day and say, you know, I've really helped someone out, and, and uh, I'm fine with it. I mean, I could have made a lot more money maybe in the other years as an investment banker, maybe not the last five years. But I noticed that you also have an MBA. Yes, I do. Have you found that to be helpful as you're managing your practice, both in Southern California and now in the rural area? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think I'd still be in, in private practice. As well, I'm not in private practice now as of the last year, but I, I don't think I would have survived here without it. And what are you doing now as of the last year? Well, the last year, just kind of seeing the sea changes that were occurring at the macro level and in medicine, I've joined up with a what's technically called a federally qualified health center, or in layman's terms, they call it community clinics a lot. But it's uh, a partially federally funded clinic that helps with the indigents. And there was a lot of strategic interest in doing the telemedicine and the outreach and whatnot, and it, and it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And now I'm about a year and a half into it, and it's definitely been the right thing to do. I also noticed that you have an interest in plant diets as a sort of curative treatment for metabolic syndrome, diabetes, whatnot. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, this is the weirdest thing. I got an electronic medical record partially with federal funding that I got for my telemedicine clinics. And around, oh, I guess about three or four years ago, they had a program where they would help people with electronic medical records bring it up to the next level. And this was before the whole Meaningful Use program. They had these QIOs, that the Quality Improvement Organizations, and, and for Texas, it was the Texas Medical Foundation. And so they sent a guy up to sort of help me beef up my use of my electronic medical record. And it turned out that I was doing most of the stuff that he recommended. But So we just started jawboning about stuff, and he'd asked me if I'd read a book called The China Study. And, you know, I'm Chinese, but I hadn't, and this was kind of weird, and so I thought, boy, I better read this thing. It's by a nutritionist by the name of T. Colin Campbell from Cornell, and it was just gobsmacking for me to understand that diet was curative for most of, for most of what I see, basically, and that it's just that most of us who go through medical school haven't really had intensive dietary education, especially not for normal people. I mean, we, we get some stuff for ICU people, for renal failure people, but for just for normal people and how to maintain normal people from getting metabolic syndrome, I mean, I know I had virtually none back in the 80s. So this is all a revelation that putting someone on a whole plant diet could cure their diabetes, but I've done this now in just dozens of people. It is true that not everybody will bite, so to speak, but for those who do, it's really nice. I mean, it's, it's actually probably the funnest thing I do now is convince people to eat whole plants primarily, at least 90% of their diet from whole plants, and then just start taking off their antihypertensives, their antilipidemics. Yeah, I imagine in a day and age where you're seeing obesity epidemics and just this rise in diabetes, that there's a real opportunity to uh, provide patients with that kind of alternative. Yeah, it's just very satisfying. And, and now that we're sort of in a recession and food prices are going through the roof, I get a little bit more leverage on folks saying that, you know, beans and rice are a lot cheaper than burgers and cheese and whatnot. So. 
So we have a, an interesting audience of over 400,000 regular physician listeners and other healthcare professionals, and I'd love to get your perspective on, would you recommend that people consider a career in medicine these days with all that's going on in medicine? Well, I think if you have a calling, yeah. You know, the things that are going on in medicine, I mean, they're twofold. One is the autonomy of the physician. The other is the financial reimbursement. And probably the latter is probably weighing heavily on, on people's minds. We're just not making as much money as we used to, and, and it's harder to get it. And then spending more time justifying our decisions to other people, which is really irritating. And, and that's all true. But I think if you have a calling to heal the sick, there's still nothing quite like it. I don't think that'll really ever change. I mean, it is true that it's harder to get things done in a lot of ways than it used to be, and you don't make as much money doing it. But that doesn't really affect the center of what the calling is. I imagine having seen and practiced in California versus Texas, um, you have an interesting contrast on the sort of business of running a practice and the sort of political policy environment. Do you have any thoughts to share on the at least the environment in Texas and how that contrasts with California? Yeah, well, that's largely why I came to Texas. Is it seemed like a much more physician-friendly environment. And I have to say, the Texas Medical Association has got to be one of the best-run organizations I've ever had anything to do with. And, you know, it's just amazing to me the things they've been able to achieve here, like, you know, changing the state constitution with Proposition 12 to put in the $250,000 pain and suffering limits on malpractice, that, that was extraordinary. I mean, the, the lawyers just pulled out all the stops on that, and they got it done. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. It's totally amazing. And that had made it possible for them to increase the amount of recruiting that they got in terms of you know physicians from other states coming to Texas because of the decreased malpractice premiums. So a very effective organization, and I think they've made it about as physician-friendly a climate as you're going to get, especially in a large state like this. California, I mean, you know, they got their problems. Definitely the state budget problems don't help. I would like to thank my guest today, Dr. Sidney Antai, a family practice physician from Plainview, Texas. I would also like to thank the Texas Medical Association for nominating Dr. Antai to be interviewed and invite our listeners to find out more about America's largest state medical association by visiting www.texmed.org. Dr. Antai, thanks so much again for being a guest on Voices from American Medicine. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice on the front lines of healthcare. Voices from American Medicine is hosted by ReachMD CEO, Gary Epstein.